welcome back to Plastic Surgery Decoded, the podcast where we demystify plastic surgery and provide a foundation for understanding it, whether you're actually considering a procedure or you're just curious. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Regina Newhan, and in this season number four, you'll find a new approach, including interviews and covering a wide variety of subjects. But after you listen to this episode, I encourage you to go back and really explore the previous seasons as they are full of valuable information. You get to pick and choose what to learn about next. Season one covers common aesthetic or cosmetic surgery topics and skincare, while season two explains reconstructive surgery topics. Then season three goes over general questions about plastic surgery. Remember that this podcast reflects my experience and opinion, as well as those of any guest interviewed. It is not intended to provide medical advice, nor is it a substitute for a formal consultation with your physician. So stay tuned for this interesting journey we'll take together in the ever-expanding world of plastic surgery. Let's go. Facelift. The term sparks excitement in some and apprehension in others. Much of the latter can come from trying to contemplate the unknown. Things are always a bit more daunting if we don't know much about them or understand them. Usually the common goal of a facelift is to elevate the skin of the face enough to unwrinkle it or remove folds, then redrape it and trim away any excess skin before suturing closed. Now once we get the gist of what a facelift can do, how is it decided what type of facelift we should get? If you research facelifts, there are so many different types available, all with their own nuanced target areas and aesthetic goals. It's easy to get lost in the weeds. But luckily, we have Dr. David Hidalgo in conversation today to help make sense of it all. As you'll hear, he's incredibly accomplished and experienced in this field, and he has a lot to tell you about when you might need a facelift, what the options are, and what to expect afterwards. So let's get started. Well, I'd like to introduce Dr. David Hidalgo, who currently has an aesthetic plastic surgery private practice in New York. He has had a long and productive career and has made some amazing contributions to the field of plastic surgery, not least of which was the development, while at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, of the game-changing technique to reconstruct the jaw using a spare bone and soft tissue from the leg. He has served in numerous educational, advisory, editorial, and leadership roles, and definitely leaving his mark on our specialty. Welcome, Dr. David Hidalgo. Thanks, Regina. Happy to be here. Well, your practice is completely focused on aesthetic or cosmetic surgery now, but what do you think is the percentage breakdown in terms of facial surgery versus body or breast surgery? Well, you know, I've had a a long run uh, and the benefit of doing surgery of all of those areas. And so I would say today it's probably 50% facial surgery, rhinoplasty, leprosy, facelifts, and the rest is body contouring surgery, primarily breast. Yeah, great. That sounds like a nice mix. Well, today we're talking about how to make sense of all the various types of facelifts available. But first, let's talk about how we get there, the indications for a facelift. When is it needed? You know, in other words, when could a person get enough improvement from, say, non-surgical interventions like injectables and lasers? And when is it time to talk about a surgical facelift? Is it at a certain age, or is it more about the characteristics and findings of the skin itself? It really boils down to two simple things, in my opinion. It's when we start to get a jowl formation and laxity in the neck. 
and the latter is usually more noticeable first. So without those two things, a facelift is usually not indicated. By the way, there's no such thing as a preventive facelift. We only treat changes that are real and substantive enough to warrant what it takes to fix it. You know, short of gel formation or looseness of the skin in the neck, if those are not there, what type of non-surgical facial rejuvenation procedures do you think uh, make sense for people who want to look their best? Well, it, it's interesting. I, I haven't found those to be very powerful tools. You know, they, they can be used to stave off surgery for a while. But I must say, some of the more advanced non-surgical means, like radiofrequency, uh, I just don't really see much of a result. And, and most of those are applied to young patients who barely need it. So I, I wonder in my own mind if they just think they look better. But uh, I haven't been really impressed with that. Mm -hmm. uh, on the other hand, fillers used conservatively and very selectively um, can help a bit in, in making a face look better. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't really reverse aging changes, however. So it's improving the contour of the face, so to speak, but perhaps not changing the overall age appearance? Exactly. And, you know, my dermatology colleagues are using these tools as far as they can go with them. However, I have noticed, you know, there's a mistaken notion that if you fill the cheeks up enough with filler, you're somehow going to raise up the jowl area in the lower part of the face. And I have not found that to be a valid principle. In fact, if you try to do that vigorously enough, you end up changing the whole appearance of the face to something that is not natural. Mm -hmm. I think we've all seen those patients who have gone a little bit too far with their fillers and... Uh, have really changed the contour, perhaps not for the best. Indeed. So uh, yes, your point is well taken. Well, once a facelift is decided upon, there are many different versions to consider. But first, I think many people don't really have a crisp concept of what we surgeons even mean when we say facelift. So I'd like to ask you to describe the process in a minute, but could you just start by explaining the specific areas or subunits of the face that are typically targeted and which are not part of a standard facelift? Yes, and it's, it's actually a very simple explanation. And you're right. I have many patients who come in and they say, oh my goodness, I'm not ready for a whole facelift. But uh, what they don't understand is in, on the terminology is that a facelift only treats from like the mid portion of the cheek to the bottom of the neck. It does nothing for the eyes and the forehead. It's really the lower half of the face uh, exclusively. And how would you describe the typical process of a, say, traditional facelift? Well, from a surgical point of view, there, there are two main elements. One is tightening the skin that's loose, and the second part is what goes on underneath at a deeper level. And today, the deeper level is probably more important in terms of reestablishing facial shape and providing maximum longevity for the procedure. And so just as an example for a typical facelift, what type of incision would most surgeons make? The incisions primarily, 
are in front and behind the ear. Uh, there are several ways to do it, but if it's well done, either method will result in a scar that's barely perceptible. Uh, it sort of follows the course of the ear in the front and in the middle of the ear, there's a cartilage that sticks out that we, you know, we call the tragus mm -hmm. and the incision can be placed behind it so that you actually don't have a linear incision all the way in front of the ear. It kind of disappears in the middle. And that's what I prefer to do. As far as the neck tightening portion, that requires a scarf behind the ear and one that trails off into the hair. And these are not very visible scars if they're done well. Uh, sometimes, and actually probably most of the time is a better way to put it, we also need a scar under the chin in order to treat some of the loose tissue that's deep to the skin in that area and tighten certain muscles in order to provide a smooth neck contour. What you're referring to might also be termed a platysmoplasty, going through the chin area, a little bit under the chin, and trying to tighten neck contour in that way. Yes, exactly. Uh, the platysma is, is the muscle in the neck that is a pretty big muscle, and we recognize it in older individuals as these cords that we see in front of the neck. The platysma muscle is not a very strong or functional muscle. All it does is it helps pull down the corners of the mouth. So what we need to do to make it look better, since most patients have those two individual cords, is we need to sew those edges together. And then from the side of the face, we pull that platysma muscle up because once it's together in the middle, it's like a, a hammock and you pull that hammock up and then that smooths out those cords that are one of the primary reasons that patients want their neck fixed. And for the typical facelift that you do, how long does it take? That's a good question. And patients are often a little put off by how long it takes to do a facelift properly. There's a couple of issues and reasons why that is. And the better that we've gotten at understanding facial aging, the more things we can do to reverse it surgically in a way that looks completely natural. Unfortunately, it takes time to do every one of those component procedures that contribute to that look. So it can take easily three and a half to four and a half hours just to do the facelift part. And the second factor that adds time are the adjunctive procedures that we commonly do in pretty much every facelift. And by that, I mean some patients, and, and we can talk about adjunctive procedures more in detail, but some need a chin implant, some need some resurfacing of their skin, some need their eyes done. There are many different things that we do that add time to the procedure. So it can take like six hours in some cases. What I emphasize is that this surgery is, is very superficial on the body. It doesn't go deep inside. So although we need anesthesia, it doesn't have to be that deep. Uh, and it's very well tolerated. And what would patients expect in terms of healing and recovery time? Pretty good around two weeks. 
Facelifts have been around for over a century, but have naturally evolved over time. And at some point, we realized that just removing extra skin was typically not enough. So would you mind explaining for our listeners the structure in our faces called the SMAS, or the Superficial Muscular Abenerosis System, and its importance? So, you know, if we think of the face like an onion and we peel back the layers, the first layer is the skin. Right under the skin, there's a fatty layer that's in variable in thickness um, between patients. And then under the fat is the, the layer you just mentioned, which we use the acronym SMAS, S-M-A-S. And under the SMAS are the muscles that move the face and the nerves to those muscles. So what we've learned is that just pulling on the skin to reshape the face Number one is not a very powerful tool. And number two, if you push too hard with that technique, all that happens is there's so much tension on the scars that they tend to look wide and, and unattractive. So about 40 years ago or more, we started tightening the deeper layer and putting the emphasis on the SMAS layer. And there are two leading approaches to that today. But regardless, by tightening that SMAS layer, the SMAS will carry the more superficial layers of the onion, if you will, with it so that the skin goes along for the ride passively. The face is reshaped by working at a deeper layer. And consequently, while there is some extra skin that is trimmed away, the scar quality is much better, number one. And because the structural support for the facelift is at a deeper layer, the longevity of the procedure is enhanced. Yeah, that's a great explanation. Yeah, it's kind of like gristle tissue, isn't it? You know, you have the muscles underneath and it's kind of this structural support layer. So. It certainly looks like that. You know, as a surgeon, it's all very precise mm -hmm. and uh, the, the results get better the more precise you are, the better you understand the anatomy, and the more you focus on the aesthetics. You know, some of my colleagues are very technique-oriented, and they just want to bang out a technique because, as I mentioned earlier, there's many different parts to facelift surgery. There are other things we do. It all adds time. So a good facelift surgeon will focus on those areas where you're going to make the greatest aesthetic changes. And it usually takes a longer, longer time to do that properly. And clearly there are now a variety of facelift options available today. And of course, every surgeon seems to tout their own version, but would you describe some of the different categories of facelift, whether the technique may focus on the depth of dissection or the type of support or type of incision you know, I'm thinking things like deep plane facelift, mini facelifts, and, you know, SCAR facelifts, things like that. How do yes. you kind of, how do you conceptualize those in your own mind? Well, I think a lot of that is jargon that has been put forth in some instances on a marketing basis and not really on a very precise anatomically descriptive basis. S lifts, ponytail lifts, uh, all of these things 
are confusing to prospective patients who are trying to sort out, well, what do I need? Basically, there's really one facelift, and you can vary the emphasis in what you do. For example, patients that are 50 years old and maybe, I would say maybe as, as old as 60, if they've got great skin with good elasticity and few changes in their neck, they're candidates for what I call a short scar facelift. Another jargon, uh, piece of jargon, but what that means is that the emphasis is on the cheeks, less on the neck, and the scars in the back of the ear are very minimal. So that's one variation. But most patients, particularly those, and again, my cutoff point is around 60 years old, they need a standard facelift where the incisions are in front and behind the ear. And then the other significant variable there is what is going on in the front of the neck. If they have those cords or they have a lot of fat in the front of the neck, then we have to open the front of the neck from under the chin. So as I think of facelifts, I think young patients, maybe we don't have to make the incisions behind the ears. Um, patients who, who have pretty good neck and are older, maybe we don't have to open up under the chin. But the vast majority of patients who present between the ages of 55 and 65 and older need a, what I would call a full facelift, meaning they need the incisions in front and behind the ears and also under the chin to address all of the anatomical aging changes. What about a technique that's been touted using what we call barbed suture, which would be sutures that have little kind of little spurs on them to catch the tissues and help pull up or hike up the tissues, so to speak, to a higher position with the thinking that they would dissolve after time. Do you ever use those in your practice or what do you think of those? I think barbed sutures fall in the gray zone between surgeons and non-surgeons. Facial aesthetic surgery is lucrative for practitioners, so everybody wants to get in on it. If you're not a surgeon, you want to do as much as you can just short of that. And in my opinion, that's where barbed sutures have come in. It's still a surgical procedure, but it's a small procedure where instead of opening the cheeks and lifting the tissue surgically, these barbed sutures are threaded down from the temple area and it catches the tissue in the cheeks. You pull up on the barbed sutures and you tie them at the top of the head and somehow that's supposed to tighten the face. It's illustrative of the concept where small procedures yield small results. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have not seen any of those uh, barbed suture techniques give a impressive result, number one, and a long-lasting result, number two. I mean, they, even the practitioners who are advocates will frequently say, well, this is going to last about a year. So to me, barbed sutures are not something that are a good investment for patients. I think they're in the wrong office if someone is trying to tell them barbed sutures are going to help them. Well, and certainly there can be problems, I would imagine, if uh, the sutures dissolve too early 
or if the technique is a little bit off and you have some unpleasant lines that are created from those sutures. So um, yeah, we'll take that to heart. And uh, just to clarify, I touched on this a little bit earlier, but regarding depth of dissection, when we do the facelift procedures, what is a deep plane facelift or how would you describe that? The deep plane facelift versus the SMAS facelift is very controversial, uh, even among surgeons. Um, and deep plane has been a term that it has been strongly marketed to almost to the point uh, and very successfully uh, to the point that if you don't do a deep plane, you're somehow not doing the right facelift. And to step back for a minute, where did that come from, these terms? Well, the SMAS layer, which we talked about earlier, is present in every patient. And what we're talking about is how do you tighten the SMAS layer? So plastic surgeons, by and large, will raise the SMAS layer, that's that deeper layer in the onion analogy that we used earlier. The SMAS layer is lifted separately after the skin's been lifted. And then that SMAS layer is tightened by sewing it at a higher point uh, in the facial skeleton to tighten the lower face. So that's a SMAS procedure. Deep plane, the difference is, and, and by the way, facial plastic surgeons are a group of plastic surgeons that were trained in otolaryngology programs, which is different than plastic surgery, traditional plastic surgery programs. So the otolaryngology programs teach deep plane lifts. And what it means anatomically is that the SMAS layer and the skin are raised together so that when they're tightened, they are tightened as a single unit. What are the pros and cons between deep plane and SMAS procedures? Well, what I like about SMAS procedures is that the facial skin and the SMAS layer are separate. And that means you can move them separately because the SMAS layer, you actually want to pull that up vertically, whereas the skin needs to go backwards more obliquely. And in my mind, that gives you the best redraping of the tissues over the skeleton to give you the best aesthetic result. On the other hand, deep plane, since you're moving those layers together, it's not as, you can't do as custom facial shaping as you can when you do a SMAS. However, the advantages of the deep plane are that it's faster for the surgeon. I don't know at end of day if that's good for the patient, but it's faster for the surgeon because you're not separating the layers. Uh, the other advantage is that because the two layers are still adherent, meaning the SMAS and the skin, uh, the circulation to the skin is better. When you raise the skin and the SMAS separately, sometimes the skin circulation is a little shaky, but even so, there's rarely any problems that result from that. Yeah, our face has such good blood supply anyway that it's it's kind of hard to cause too much trouble, but uh, that was an excellent explanation. 
let me move on to ask you whether you like to combine surgical and non-surgical techniques for facial rejuvenation. So as we alluded to before, you know, a facelift combined with some type of resurfacing procedure. And then also what surgical procedures you combine with a facelift. You mentioned, you know, other things that you like to do or a patient may need at the same time as their facelift. So could you explain uh, those two things? Yes. In terms of combining non-surgical procedures with surgery, what we're talking about is treating the skin and reshaping at the same time. Non-surgical means usually affect skin texture, um, skin irregularities, whereas surgery is reshaping the face and getting rid of jowls and cleaning up the neck. So you have to remember that when we're doing a facelift, we're lifting up the skin over the entire cheeks and most of the neck. So we don't wanna do too much on the surface of the skin at the same time, because while you correctly pointed out the facial skin circulation is awesome and probably the best in the body, you can hit it too hard if you're doing too much on the inside and the outside at the same time. I think that if patients really have significant sun damage and, and spots and texture issues, that the facial surgery and the skin resurfacing should be done at separate times. That said, commonly, patients who are candidates for facelift do have significant texture issues in their upper lip, most commonly. And it's, these are non-smokers. Everybody gets this eventually, particularly if the skin is very fair in color. Also the chin area. So I will combine resurfacing of those areas at the same time as a facelift because I'm not working on those areas. Where I'm lifting the skin is to the sides of that. So you can actually resurface the central face pretty aggressively during a facelift to get some benefit. But again, if it's really a whole face texture issue, then I think resurfacing should be done separately. In terms of combining procedures with facelifts, let's look at it in two ways. What do we combine facially and what can we combine on other parts of the body? Well, most patients who are candidates for facelifts and have not had their eyes done previously will usually benefit from having surgery of their upper and lower eyelids so that the whole picture goes well together and everything looks equally rejuvenated. So I would say that that's the most common procedure that we add to a facelift, that's eyelid surgery. But there are many adjunctive procedures that are also very helpful. Uh, many patients do not have enough forward chin projection and just putting in the smallest plastic chin implant makes a huge difference from the side view and it's so subtle on the front view it doesn't look like anything happened and most of their friends don't even realize it but they look better for that reason uh, also uh, two other ancillary procedures that we do commonly is as we age the tip of our nose continues to grow and it drops down and it's quite straightforward to just raise the tip of the nose and make it smaller in those individuals in whom it would benefit. And finally, what's very popular today is something called a lip lift. And what that means is that the upper lip, not just the red part, but the 
skin between the lip, the actual lip and the bottom of the nose gets longer. As we age, it, it gets longer and starts to hang like a curtain and we can't even see our front teeth anymore when we mm -hmm. smile. So what we do is we take away a little piece of skin from under the nose and shorten that distance and it rolls out the upper lip and it looks like you have more lip volume. And that's very rejuvenating to do that in the right patients. So these are just three examples of adjunctive procedures that are commonly done with facelifts besides eyelid surgery. Mm -hmm. In terms of what procedures can be done elsewhere on the body at the same time, the overriding criteria is how much extra surgery time is this going to add? Because we've already said that a, a well-done facelift is going to take at least four hours and maybe more. So we don't want to end up with a surgery that goes much beyond six hours in a healthy patient. So you could add two hours, you could add liposuction, you could add a breast augmentation. Uh, you can't do anything more lengthy than that, like a, a tummy tuck or a breast reduction. I would say that most of the extra time during facial surgery is spent doing adjunctive procedures on the face and far less commonly distant procedures below the neck. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes sense to kind of keep everything focused on the face and come back for another session to do body things as needed. Uh, I'm curious, how about brow lifts in combination with your facelifts? Are you doing those very often? You know, brow lifts to me are the least frequently needed procedure in addition to the others we've discussed. The reason is that brow lifts don't work that well unless they're done by the traditional method, which was kind of gruesome when you explain it to a patient because it literally requires an incision from ear to ear across the top of the head to be able to effectively pull the forehead and the eyebrows up to a higher position. So that works and actually is very well tolerated. And there's not that much bruising because we're working at a deeper layer, but it's not very popular with patients when you explain what it takes. As a result of that, over the past decades, surgeons have tried to figure out a less invasive way to do brow lifts. And there are many, there are endoscopic brow lifts, there are temple lifts, um, there are other types, but the problem is those procedures are not as effective and long lasting. So fortunately, the vast majority of patients do not need to have their eyebrows elevated. So fortunately, it's not something that we have to do very often. Well, you know, something that uh, just popped into my head right now uh, that I would end up doing a little bit more often than I expected I would, I would get requests from patients to reshape or shorten their earlobes. Uh, as you discussed, the tip of the nose tends to droop as we age and the lip. Many people have earlobes that stretch out and, you know, you do this nice facelift and then there's this uh, kind of globby earlobe hanging there. How about you? Have you done that very often with your facelifts? You're right. Uh, and uh, again, as, as we age, our ears get longer. And uh, if you look at somebody in their 80s and 90s, they got these really big ears. But most of that is above the earlobe. So 
if we have a patient that's got like really long earlobes and they've, they've kind of thinned out and they just kind of hang, you're 100% right. It's very easy to just uh, snip those. Uh, you take out like a slice of pie type of shape from the bottom and you put it together and it's a simple thing to do and, and it's very popular. Well, I'd like to ask you about your opinion uh, regarding the importance of fat in facial rejuvenations, particularly when you're doing a facelift. How do you decide whether to remove fat or add it or just reposition it? The basic treatment for fat in the face is to reposition it. We do add fat, and that's in vogue right now in plastic surgery circles. It's like the answer to every question is fat, perhaps. Uh, I'm, I'm more of a minimalist in that regard because the fat doesn't take in a predictable way so that, you know, you can build up the fat and, and I've been disappointed that, you know, six months later, where'd it go? It's gone. And so a lot of my colleagues are pumping a lot of fat into the face. What I've found is that it does work in some parts of the face and where it works the most are the cheeks on the side. And I think it's because that part of the face is not as mobile as the center of the face. And so the fat grafts seem to be able to survive while they're healing in that environment, whereas they seem to get chewed up when it's in the central face. Uh, as far as removing fat, those who have a very full, you know, like a turkey gobbler kind of neck, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, that's not just hanging skin, but there's a lot of fat there. Uh, we can really go to town on that and take out a lot of that deep fat under the platysma muscle we talked about earlier. And it's a day and night contour difference to do that. Uh, some patients have really heavy jowls. And so sometimes we'll just trim that a little bit when we're tightening it. And then another uh, currently very fashionable thing to do is to remove fat from the cheek through the inside the mouth. There's a little bag of fat in our cheeks that is probably the size of an egg yolk. And in some people, it really gives them a chipmunk kind of look. So when we see that, we can just go inside the mouth, inside the cheek, make a really tiny incision and pull out that fat. And it makes the shape not as round and globular, and it gives them a little bit more definition. Mm -hmm. So in terms of removing fat, that's probably the most common besides the front of the neck. Mm -hmm. Well, overall, do you think there are misconceptions among the public about facelift surgeries? I do. And I think it's not so much a judgmental thing where someone will say, oh, so-and-so's had a facelift. No, it's really more about unnatural appearance that sometimes will result from a facelift. And yes, if you see something that's not well done, I mean, it's like, oh my God, I don't want that. Right. And when patients come to see you, they say, I don't want to look like the people and they'll pick out a place like Palm Beach. I don't want to look like those folks that all look stretched. And what I would say to that is that good surgeons don't create those kind of defects, if we, let's call it what it is. But also from the patient's side of it, there are some who just don't know when to stop. 
And you can have two well-done facelifts in your lifetime, maybe spread 10 to 12 years apart. But if you keep doing it, no matter how good the surgeon is, and most surgeons are going to say, don't do it, but there's going to be one that they find who will do it. And then they get this distortion of their cheeks and they look strange. And that's where facelifts get a bad name because the vast majority of facelifts that are well done, you don't know a person's had a facelift. They just look better. They look young for their age and you can't, you don't get why that is. And that's, that is what we strive to do as surgeons. We want to rejuvenate without leaving any fingerprints. That's very true. Uh, and that is what we strive for. And those are the home runs when we can achieve that. So, uh, you know, we touched on this just a little bit, but what do you tell your patients about how long results will last? Because they will ask you, of course, and it depends on the technique you've used, but uh, in general, what do you say? In my experience, what I found is when you do a, uh, we talked about the SMAS, the deeper layer, when you correct that, the cheeks will hold up extremely well for 10, 12, sometimes 14 years. The Achilles heel of facial aging and surgical correction is the neck. And what brings patients back sooner than that are ongoing aging changes in their neck. And that could be in as little as seven years or eight years. Sometimes we just need to retighten the neck a little bit, uh, particularly if the cheeks are holding up well. But in terms of longevity, I would say the face is going to look good for 10 to 12 years, but the neck not as long. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, as we're finishing up, I want to ask you a couple more questions. What innovations in facelift technique or options would you love to see developed in the future? You know, whether it's something we have technology for now or maybe we don't. That's a good question. I think the area that we suffer from the most in terms of providing durable results is the aging process itself and specifically the loss of fat in the face because that's when contours start looking very angular, faces look hollow, they just look drawn. We need a way of adding volume and I'm not convinced that fat graphs are the answer, at least today's technology. If we're gonna rely on fat, which is the most logical substance to use, we need better methods of transplanting the fat so that it survives. I, I think that's the number one issue in terms of facelift technology and providing not only beautiful results, but long lasting results. Yeah, I think that's very insightful. It is indeed something that could be improved. And boy, wouldn't that be great if we had a better way of reliably transferring fat and ensuring its survival. Well, any lasting thoughts you'd like to leave the listeners with about our subject today, facelifts and the variety of options that are available? I think um, what I would say is, first of all, the facelifts are, are not for everyone. But as you go through life, and many patients say to me, I'm never going to do a facelift. And that's maybe when I do their breast augmentation and I see them 20 years later and they change their mind. Mm -hmm. So, you know, again, facelifts are not for everyone, but 
if you find as you're as you're getting older that you don't look the way you feel inside uh, then you know it's something to think about doing because it's very effective when well done at making you look on the outside the way you feel on the inside because you know we are always the same person throughout our lives you know we don't our brain doesn't change our point of view doesn't change but our outside changes so i would say you know don't don't be fearful of the process do your research listen to your friends who have had it done look at them critically do you like the way it came out on them find the right doctor that's the most important thing and if you do that the process is not as daunting as you might be expecting you know it's maybe 2 weeks of downtime very little discomfort by the way again i would say it's not for everyone but it is very effective and and gives you a psychological boost mm-hmm. uh, when it's well done yeah well those are some wise words Dr. David Hidalgo, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today and share your knowledge and your insight. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. So happy to help. Well, that's our show for today. Hope you enjoyed it and learned something too. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Please share this podcast with someone else who might be interested. And while you're at it, check out the podcast website for related topics to explore. It's www.plasticsurgerydecoded.com. And as always, thank you for listening to Plastic Surgery Decoded.